Hey guys, welcome to episode number 43 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, you're going to hear the conversation that I had this morning with Cameron Joss, who is the performance director of the famous DeFranco's training based out of New Jersey in the USA. I was extremely excited to have this conversation with Cameron. If you know of him on social media, you'll see that he does some great work. For my money, he's at the forefront of utilizing force velocity profiling in jumping and sprinting with field-based sport athletes, most notably his NFL combine preparation athletes. So we really got into the details of these topics, talking about the setup they have at DeFranco's, the size of the groups, the typical weekly and daily setup of the training, how he manages to implement force velocity profiling with his groups, and the direction that he wants to take his work in the future. So if you would like to get schooled on all things sprint training, strength training, American football, and a host of other topics, be sure to listen to this episode, which was a great conversation, and actually the second attempt at this conversation because the audio fucked up the first time we tried. Remember, if there are any guests that you would like to hear interviewed on the Rugby Strength Coach podcast, please reach out to me on any of the social media platforms at Rugby Strength Coach, and I'll do my best to make it happen. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion, and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're gonna be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt, and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're gonna get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep, and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just £1. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it, there's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Cameron, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me again after our uh, our mishap with uh, some technology issues i guess <laughs> yeah well the first one was a pleasure and um that, that was the practice run we've got out of the way so uh, i'm sure this one's going to be even better so this one it's got to be perfect now right yeah it's got to be n- never perfect it's got to be great it's, it's an asymptote <laughs> we, we can get a little bit closer every day <laughs> yeah so um for people who haven't heard of you what do you do I am currently the director of sports performance for DeFranco's Training Systems or DeFranco's Jam. It's got many different names uh, 
out there. But uh, yeah, I, I basically I do all of the the programming and uh, really all of the coaching at this point um, for the brand of DeFranco's Gym, and we work with athletes, you know, all the way from high school up to professional level, and we're constantly encouraging people out there if they're interested in training with us. We want to take on the challenge of working with any sport, any population, as long as it's goal-driven and uh, people know what they want for themselves and, and their performance or whatever their goal might be. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where we are now is we're, we're trying to learn more as coaches and we're trying to broaden our horizons. And that's what I do. I'm the, I'm, I'm the main coach over there. My, my boss, Joe D, he's taken on more of a, a face of the brand and he's doing a lot of consulting work now and uh, he's got a bunch of different projects in terms of improving the outreach that he can with uh, reaching out to coaches all over the globe and um, now I'm doing a lot more of the hands-on work for the brand so it's, it's fun it's been great it's kind of like a, a stupid question because I think if you're uh, if you picked up a weight in like the mid-2000s and you wanted to get big and strong you, you probably knew who DeFranco's was and it's, it's definitely like one of the one of the biggest brands within the strength and conditioning industry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny how, how much of an outreach it has, um, you know, even globally, just a, a lot of people in the UK know about them and a lot of people, you know, even in India and Australia and things like that. And uh, the cool thing about it, I think is that, you know, Joe, he never really, he never tried super hard really to build it that way. I think his whole thing was just, let me just, do what I can with the guys I have. Let me get some results with them and let me just broadcast what I'm doing, you know, on the internet, on my website, on my, on my YouTube. And obviously now with social media, he does that. And, and I follow in his footsteps with that, but that's, it's interesting how um, sometimes that's as simple as it needs to be is um, here, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to broadcast it, whether or not you want to see it. And, you know, if you like it, that's cool. If you don't, you know, whatever, you don't have to watch it, but um <laughs> That's yeah. just kind of how, that's how his personality is. You know, Joe's personality is very laid back and everybody that meets him loves him. And uh, I think that's a big reason why he sort of was able to build the brand out to the way it is, is he just appeals to a lot of people. So are you, you're based in Jersey now, right? Yeah, based in East Rutherford, New Jersey, um, you know, right, right by MetLife Stadium, actually, where, where the Giants and the Jets play uh, in the NFL. And, uh, yeah, it's a small facility. It's, uh, about, you know, we've, we've downsized our entire business model, uh, as of late. And, you know, we're running out of about, uh, 1,000 to 1,500 square foot weight room, uh, and right across the street, literally like a hop, skip and a jump. We've got, uh, a, a full track with a, a turf football field, uh, within it. So that, that's great for us with our, our field work and stuff we do uh, outside. But yeah, it's it's a smaller business model, smaller groups, and just focusing on what's important and just trying to get some results. You started as an athlete though, right? As, with, with DeFranco's. Yeah. So that's, that's where my history with Joe is, uh, where it comes from, is that I was a – you know, it's funny. He's got that program, Westside for Skinny Bastards, that template that uh, – Yeah kind of took off, you know, back in the day. And, uh, I was definitely a skinny bastard. So <laughs> I, I was looking for places to train cause you know, I was taking, I was playing American football and I wanted to take it seriously cause I loved the sport. I picked it up late. I didn't pick it up until I was in high school, but, uh, fell in love with it, loved everything that 
that went into the sport. But I realized I was just I'm a, I'm a skinny bastard. I'm too small, um, and I'm and I didn't feel that fast. Didn't feel that powerful. Definitely felt weak, not very strong. So I, I sought out uh, somebody that could help me out. And Joe was about 10 minutes down the highway. So I went over to see him when I was 16 years old. I think it was uh, 2007. So that was about 10 years ago now. I went to see him as a skinny bastard. And, uh, yeah, he, he got me from 165 pounds up to 195 pounds in less than a year. And I went back to my senior year for football. And the coaches were like, you're obviously way bigger. You're way faster. You jump a lot higher. You are you know, blowing guys up on the field compared to last year. You know, what the hell did you do? And I told them I went to DeFranco's gym down the road. And uh, so that that's – that was the first experience I had with Joe and, and the program he was running. And I, I fell in love with, with exercise science at that point, so much so that that inspired me to go study exercise science and kinesiology when I went to college. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to study and what I wanted to do with my life. But when I felt that transformation firsthand, and he's really, you know, because of that program, that's the only reason I played at uh, the University uh, of Rhode Island as well is – because I was able to improve physically the way I did. And so that, that's why I thought that was really cool. And I want to do that for people as well. And that's uh, what got me into the field, basically. When you, uh, when you went to your college, that was a four-year college, right? Yeah, University of Rhode Island. Uh, so I played football there and got my bachelor's there. And then uh, right after I graduated, Joe gave me the opportunity to work with him. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to go the college route. Uh, I didn't know you if I wanted too much. to, <laughs> what's that? I said, you like sleep too much and money. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, that's, that's what people joke about. Right. Um, yeah. but really I just wanted to find what was going to be the best fit for me where I was going to have somebody that was going to oversee, uh, you know, my growth and, and allow me to grow in the right way. And that's, that's what Joe did. He presented me with the opportunity to basically be the bottom, uh, the guy at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, at DeFranco's and he's like he basically I mean he threw me to the wolves you know he he didn't he didn't handhold me through anything didn't micromanage at all he, you know so much so that I almost wish he at the time I was like wish he did a little bit yeah um, so I had to I had to adapt and overcome really quickly um, and a lot of it's funny you mentioned sleep because you know I, I actually had a lot of sleepless nights studying trying to learn new things try to figure out you know I I, I always joke about the you know, the movie, I can't even remember the name of the movie right now, but uh, where the math teacher's like sitting up at night, just like, how do I teach these kids? You know, it's like, <laughs> I was kind of doing that where I was like, how, how do I get oh, these guys Oh, is that the Antonio better? Banderas movie? Is that the one? I can't even remember. Like, I, it, was a, it was a movie about math. That's all I know. Yeah. I can't remember I remember the they did it's a parody a, it's a classic in, um, movie. South Park. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. that's all I could think is the, the South Park parody right now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm sitting up thinking, how do I get these guys better? You know, so it's a lot of sleepless nights just learning and studying, reading videos, reading books, and um, and then trying things out, realizing, nope, that, that doesn't work. Let me get rid of that. This works. Let me keep that. And uh, it was it was a really frustrating growth process. My first one to two years working with Joe right after, you know, because everybody graduates from school thinking they know it all, you know, they're, I've, I've studied all the books. I've, I've gone to class. I know everything. Like I could prep any athlete. I know exactly what I'm doing. And then <laughs> you realize real quick when you're responsible for their entire prep, yeah. you know, it, it's a huge responsibility and, and one that 
you know, people definitely shouldn't take lightly if they get into the coaching world. But yeah, that was, that was a great blessing at the time. I thought it was a curse, but it was definitely a blessing that, you know, he threw me in, threw me to the wolves, threw me to the fire. And, uh, I had to rise in order to continue going forward. And, you know, I'm very thankful that he did that. Well, I think, you know, that you, you mentioned that kind of, uh, that, that realization, like, oh man, this is, this is really difficult. Like I'm, I think last month was my seventh anniversary in professional rugby and I still get that. Like I think, oh, fuck, like, how am I going to, am I going to get around this issue? Or like, I'm not sure how to approach this. And I, I, I don't think it, it ever gets easier. It's like your, your horizons expand and then you just deal with bigger problems and, and harder problems. Oh yeah. That's what I always think is amazing about the field is how everything goes in waves. Like for everything that you learn and you start climbing higher and higher, you're feeling great this tidal wave of just destruction comes through and you start, you know, stressing out. Like, I don't know anything. I don't know what I'm doing. I need to rethink my, my whole career. Maybe I should just go be a salesman or something. Let me, let me, let me get out. Like I've been so frustrated with this field so many times because I realize, you know, the answers are so minimally black and white and it, it just never happens that way. And it's just, you, you have to just stay the course, you know, if, and ultimately you just have to remind yourself why you love sports and why you love being involved with sports and, and working with athletes. And, uh, it's yeah, tough, man. And any job really you get tough. to wear shorts to work is not a real job. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> ultimately that's, that's what it comes down to, right? You do shorts and sneakers and, and, and yeah. some, some wicking material shirts, you know, <laughs> it beats having a real job. So, I mean, that's right. You know, I'll, I'll say straight up, I've, I've told you this, and for anyone listening, to my mind, the stuff that you're doing at DeFranco's right now is is really at the forefront of what you see in strength and conditioning with regard to the application of certain stuff like force velocity profiling and trying to have the most individualized, data-driven approach possible uh, with your athletes. And obviously, with respect to where the DeFranco's program has come from and, and to the contribution that Joe's made and all the, the stuff that he's done with athletes... It's fair to say that what you're doing now compared to Westside for Skinny Bastards is, is incredibly different and um, arguably more effective. So can you can you talk a little bit about how that evolution happened and where you're at now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I, when I really got comfortable, I shouldn't even say comfortable, but when I got a little bit more complacent with what I was doing, where I wasn't pulling my hair out every night uh, trying to figure out where to even start, when I started getting in the flow of coaching, I guess that's probably the best way to, to go about saying it. <laughs> when yeah. I started developing a management style and, and the flow of everything, um, Joe, he basically, you know, through conversation, he, he sort of handed the torch over where it was like, Hey, you know, I've, I've brought the brand this far. So now it's your turn to carry the torch and continue to push what I've always done and push forward and, you know, go out there, learn more things, figure out how to optimize uh, preparation for, for sport as best you can. And so I, you know, I took that to heart where anytime I wasn't working with anybody hands on, I was continuing to read more, um, following certain people on social media, ignoring people that were just, you know, selling snake oil, as they say, and, and just trying to find the real stuff. And, uh, you know, Joe, even with, as rudimentary as something like Westside for Skinny Bastards was, that you know, now compared to back then, um, he's always tried to address the necessity for results. And it's like, well, how do you get results or even know you're getting them? You have to measure 
something, right? So you have to start by measuring what you're doing. So I started looking up everything under the sun in terms of things that are measurable. And I'm, and I'm just trying to, you know, I went through a whole period where I became immersed in, you know, just data and trying to figure out what, what matters and what doesn't. And, and I think that's really where um, I am now is I've, I've studied everything in terms of like uh, data points and different tests you can do and, and all of that. But, you know, anybody that really has dived into that, they'll, they'll all tell you like, you know, just don't get so immersive in it that you don't even know what the numbers are telling you. So um, yeah. that's where I'm, that, that's the point that I'm, that I've reached now is basically I'm saying what, what matters, what do I absolutely have to measure and what do I not really have to measure as much? You know, do I, I there was a time where I thought literally every lift, literally every jump, every sprint, like all I have to, I had to measure something on every single rep, no matter what the variation was. Like I, I there was a time where I was doing that. Um, and it, it's kind of exhausting and you realize like, well, you know, if I'm, if, everything you're doing, you're training for a certain end goal, like a certain adaptation or something you want to see improvement in. So, you know, maybe it's better to just create a test that uh, embodies what you're trying to measure and, and definitely measure that. And you may, maybe you measure a couple things along the way if you're timing a sprint or some type of jump or, or whatever, but you know, do I have to necessarily keep a giant, uh, you know, binder full of all these tests and data points? You know, I don't think so. And, uh, what, that's what my would be opinion the key stuff then what would be the, the real things that you're paying attention to within your program well you know obviously when we're looking at we look at strength that's obvious um that's something that you measure but what we're doing now with that is is different than what we've done in the past where um you know we want to see just some type of push some type of pull some type of squat or lunge pattern and then some type of hinge or you know hinge or I say thrust, like if you're doing like a hip thrust or something yeah. like that, just, um, so, so some type of test for each one of those, and it might change depending on the person, who the person is, but, uh, definitely for the lower body, we've started focusing more on unilateral strength, more so than squat strength or deadlift strength. And, um, we're, we're the way, the way I'm sort of looking at lifting now is sort of as like taking out insurance. It's almost like a, like structural insurance in a way. It's not really going to have more. a huge, it's not going to have a huge impact on the performance, yeah. but it's going to have a, a big impact on resiliency, um, building, you know, robustness of the, of the tissues and, and, and all of that. So we think of it that way. So these tests, those tests are really looking at, you know, if they're getting better at things like that, that's important from an injury reduction standpoint, but, uh, moving on from there from strength, because that's obviously the most common one that everybody measures, you know, we'll, we'll look at, um, I sort of look at it as, reactive versus explosive power. If you think of it that way, however you want to call it, you know, it's real simple in our minds. It's, you know, a vertical jump is just a great test of, you know, an ex just explosive ability in a general standpoint, you know, does he, does he get more explosive in a jump? And, um, so that's one that we'll, we'll keep track of, uh, in terms of more reactive stuff, we'll do something like a triple broad jump on the field, you know, three jumps, uh, where you're trying to be, reactive and, and go from one jump into the next consecutive, I guess I could say. Um, and then the distance covered in those three reps, how does that change over time? Cause that will kind of dictate a, your reactive ability in your lower body, but also, uh, specifically in a horizontal, uh, uh, moving motion, 
And um, I'll also track um, reactive strength index because I think that's a pretty cool indication of can their ankles handle the force that their hips are able to provide or um, yeah. do they have the stiff the stiffness to transmit it onto the ground, which, you know, gives me a good indication when we then look at sprinting, you know, if sprint performance is starting to slack. Is, is that an issue or not? You yeah. know, they're, their ability to transmit that through the ankle. And then, you know, when it comes to sprinting, we'll keep it simple. You know, we'll do a 10, 20 and 40 yard dash yeah. and just kind of use those as, as proxies to determine what's going on. Are you, are you um, taking the final split of that 40 from 30 to 40 to, to calculate V max or. Uh, we'll do some flying tens for that. Okay. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll do it that way. I'll just, I'll set up either. I typically do tens. I don't really do. Uh, too much testing with flying 20s. I'll do them in practice. Oh, I don't think guys can actually sustain it, really. Well, you know, yeah, so, guys, you know. Yeah, so it's more like if we do, you know, flying 20s, that's more, I treat that as like skill practice in a way. It's like, yeah. okay, just see what you can what you can do here. We're not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to scold you if, if it's not that great. I just want you to work on technique or just try to hold that top speed a little bit longer. Um, yeah, so we'll do flying 10s. It's, it's good that you brought that up and then um, you know, we'll also, we'll, we'll throw in some force velocity stuff too, just to see how, how that stuff is changing, um, over time with the guys and, uh, you know, how, how it attributes to their vertical profile with the jumping and then their horizontal profile with the, with the sprinting and just kind of see what happens there. You know, it's more, my mindset with that stuff is more observational right now because I'm continuing to learn more about it. Yeah, um, for sure. but it's. So it's interesting to keep track of, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm 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 kind of a very similar line of thinking to you with with regard to the maximal strength stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to go into the specifics, obviously, with respect to the the guys that I'm working with right now. But I can tell you for a fact, the relationship between our sprints and our maximal strength, the correlation was 0.01. So <laughs> no no relationship whatsoever. Even when right. we we made it relative to body weight. There was no relationship whatsoever, and I think it's just because there there is no there's no factoring of time into that um, the, the time they have available to produce that force. And strangely enough, the two things that correlated best with the the sprinting from the the data that we collect is RSI and uh, peak velocity with a, a 60 kilo jump squat from the pins. And you know that kind of that makes sense. But like you said. Yeah. If, if I could still have a strong athlete, would I take one? The answer is absolutely yes, because I think it's it's very contentious to say maximal strength increases sprint speed and, and jumping height, because I, th- I think the data shows that's not the case. However, it's, it's, it's almost unequivocal that a stronger athlete is going to be more robust and is going to handle the demands of a, a, league, um, a season in a contact sport, for example. Yes, yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's like I said, it's just it comes down to it, as I think it, what what helps me sleep at night by keeping lifting present in the training program is that it's just that it's that insurance, that structural insurance where, you know, you know that most of the non-contact injuries, there's a lot of high force involved at awkward angles and stuff. And it's yeah. just, you know, I need to make sure that they still have some high force ability, even though it's not going to directly impact uh, their performance in terms of uh, just performing at a super high level, but it's going to keep them on the field. At least, you know, that's what, the research can help show and just the way I view it in my opinion as well. I mean, have you got like kind of minimum values that you're trying to hit for your guys? Uh, you know what? I, I just, the way I think about it is 
um, if their performance, as as training gets more specific, if that's showing improvements, um, it, the the values are not. I'm trying to figure out like what makes sense yeah. because, like I said, we're we're playing with some different things right now. Where, um, you know, I've, I'm introducing things like like measuring a hip thrust, for example, just based off some of what Brett Contreras' research has, has looked into. And I, and you know, I, I'm of the opinion where I don't, I don't think that's going to have a crazy impact on sprint performance, which I know people have been looking at, but if you can think about just providing the structure of the posterior chain with, you know, five, 600 pounds or something on a hip thrust, I mean, mm. there's something to that, you know? Um, yeah, but yes, yeah, so I, I'm trying to figure out what makes sense with some of these weird exercises like the hip thrust or like you know bosch with his the the roman chair uh picking the barbell off off the ground and like a, a glued ham raise or something and then uh you know recently i've been posting about we've got this hex bar that has no backside that we bought uh-huh. and we're doing uh we're basically doing i call it like a single leg squat lockout so that's like a new record that we have on our record board for lifting and uh just our strength and power records that we keep it on the wall in the gym and it's just, you know, the bottom of a rear foot elevated split squat with this bar and you just pick it up. You like know, a, a you, concentric more, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's can't, what, how much can they do with that? And what does that mean in terms of uh, their ability to be, you know, robust or their performance? You know, I'm just kind of observing right now. So a lot of these weird different exercises that haven't been heavily researched, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out what the trends start to show over time. But um, Obviously, what I tell the guys is, hey, you know, ultimately, like if you think about power, it comes down to the magnitude of force or the rate at which that force is being applied. So ultimately, you want to try to improve both, you know, as best you can. Obviously, the the way the training structure is going to be, you're going to emphasize one more versus the other in terms of who you're working with. But if we're doing something in the program, I don't think there's anything wrong with just saying, I just want to get better at it, you know, <laughs> even if it's a, yeah. even if it's as simple as a bicep curl, maybe I just, I curl five more pounds than I've done before or something like that, you know, cause ultimately you're still driving force up. It's going to obviously slow down and you're going to have diminishing returns, but you know, what's wrong with maintaining that or just still trying to get, you know, maybe a, maybe a, a one kilo plate on the bar on each side or something, you know, it, it's just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't is, think, um... The, the trick is not investing so much time in the pursuit of that kilo that you detract from other areas of the program. That's, that's the key thing yeah, I think a lot that's, of people forget. That's absolutely what it comes down to. And that's, that's, I'm glad you said that because uh, it's like I said, I'm looking at all of that stuff. Like I said before, it's secondary, you know, it's not, I'm not thinking of that stuff as the primary performance indicator, but it doesn't mean they can't, if they have some reserve available at the end of the workout and, you know, when they want to see what they can get, then, obviously within limits, I'm not going to kill them. I'm not going to yeah. load them up so much that, but if it's something that they're comfortable with and they're like, yeah, I feel comfortable putting another couple pounds on, you know, I'm not going to stop them. So, um, you know, it's just, I think there's, there's really nothing wrong with that. And like you said, it's just about having guys that are robust. So yeah, I think that's, it's going to, time will tell like what, what some of the more robust guys are capable of doing versus the guys that are a little more injury prone or things like that. So, um, but the single leg work is, is definitely very interesting, especially for guys that have, uh, had hamstring issues in the past or oh, have really? had knee issues. Yeah. I mean, they just, cause we have a guy that's in, uh, you know, with that single, like, they 
perform better is the one that sells the bar that we're using. Yeah. And they call it the single leg squat bar. And it's pretty interesting because we've got a guy who had knee issues in the past when he was playing uh, in the NFL and he had an ACL tear and um, just knee and ankle issues. And he's significantly weaker on that exercise than the other two guys that work out with him who have no history of knee or, or hamstring problems or anything. Um, and it's interesting how he doesn't, he, he's one of the stronger guys on a bilateral exercise. So definitely uh-huh. that, yeah, definitely that bilateral deficit as they call it. And, uh, you know, people, they've been making fun of Mike Boyle about that for years, but he's on to something, Uncle you know, Mike. about, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's this, the fact that you want to overload that single leg. I mean, think about it. I got, I had a guy the other day, he locked out, you know, 320 pounds on each leg. Yeah. And like you think about like and it was kind of easy for him. So I'm, I guess he is it possible he could do 400 pounds on one leg. It, it, people think that's a pretty decent squat, you know. So it's it's pretty weird when you start loading one leg and because nobody's really explored that really other than Mike Boyle that much that I've that I've seen. So well, here's, um, here's the thing about that as well is one of the criticisms that was was coming at Mike Boyle. Admittedly, the math was a little bit dodgy. You know, he said, well, you know, if I do if I do 300 pounds on the left, 300 pounds on the right, that's more than a 600-pound squat. And people would say, well, no, that's not fair because the, the, the back leg is supported and you're going to get some force production in hip flexion through the back leg as well as hip yep. extension in the front leg. But no doubt. I think if you look at what, you know, the, the demands of sprinting mechanically, it's hip separation, extension in one leg, flexion in the other. And I was talking to uh, uh, Tom Farrow, a good friend of mine who interned with uh, Jonas Tawiadodu. His guys picked up a couple of medals in, in London uh, last week. And they noticed with their best sprinters, if they ever put them, for example, in a, in a single leg leg press or reverse leg press, they would actually cramp up in the opposite hip flexor. Oh, because wow. they're so used to you know that hip separation and opposition when one extends, the other flexes and so on. So I think it's, it's, it, it might almost be training... In, in that similar vein, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Got me thinking. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that I'm just, I'm playing around with it. You know, I want to see what happens, but I know that if, if we're, if somebody's lifting quite a lot of weight, you know, primarily through one leg, even if the back leg is a little bit supported, um, in that split position, I guess you could say, you know, there's for, in terms of a structural integrity standpoint i mean there's got to be substantial effects and adaptations that are happening there in terms of you know just being able to support yourself on one leg and handle a lot of force and honestly another thing i've noticed i i'm I'm guessing your your conversation with chris corfist has informed a little bit of this and um i've been playing around with his ideas with a smaller like a rehab group going for the very very long isometric holds in in rear for elevated split squats and then progressing from that into quick drop five second eccentrics and then from there into like a a ballistic or oscillatory split squat and the one thing you notice about that is they they feel it in their glutes and their hamstrings a ton more than they would a regular squat which is quite interesting even though the angles are somewhat similar yeah yeah i've actually athletes have communicated the same with me you know i haven't done that exact protocol but just uh using these split positions, these unilateral variations, uh, they're feeling it a lot more in their posterior chain than, um, you know, I think they're just so used to being on two legs because that's just 
traditional. That's just what's been hammered into them with their strength and conditioning and um, from high school and the college, the NFL. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's a traditional mindset. And nobody I guess a lot of people are they're not really asking themselves, well, why? Why do I always have to be on two legs? You know, yeah. and I think that was I'm not going to be I'm not going to say what Mike Boyle said and nobody should ever squat. But I think he was definitely onto something in terms of stressing the, the single leg patterns more. Yeah. In, in fairness to him, I think he was talking about his situation, which is, you know, hockey athletes, a lot of uh, adductor tightness, a lot of asymmetry, all that kind of stuff. So I think I, it, it wasn't it, it may have been mischaracterized as a, as a blanket statement for him. But um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, moving on, give give people an idea of, of what it's like now. If, if I come into you, you know, if the world has flipped on its head and I'm not a, a slow white guy with terrible genetics, if I come in and I'm an, <laughs> an NFL prospect, what's it going to look like a typical week at DeFranco's? And then we can talk maybe about the, the, the setup of the day as well. Yeah, so the week is going to be, we have a, we have a very broad template that stays in place all year round, but then the specific intricacies of what we're actually doing will change depending on the timing of the year. So, you know, specifically if we're talking about NFL athletes, um, they are on a four day program with what we're doing right now. And it's, we're basically using a high low emphasis with it. Uh, so day one and day three, those are our low days. So we start the week with a low day. Yeah. Um, and what we're do what we're doing on those days is we're start we're warming up first, uh, obviously. So we warm up every day. I do a full body warm up every day as well because I feel it's good to keep the whole body moving and just warmed and ready to go. Yeah. Uh, and then on day one on our low days, so day one and day three, we will start with our extensive work. Uh, I, I just started calling it extensive. I think that's helping me sleep a little bit better rather than just saying it's aerobic and it's the the <laughs> The, you know, the craziness with the, uh, the energy systems and all the new research changing all the time. So it's extensive. It's low intensity, extensive work. Um, call it aerobic if you want. Uh, and that could come in a variety of different forms. You know, sometimes it's just a basic uh, calisthenic circuit. Sometimes it's, you know, maybe we get them on a bike or something like that and just do some intervals like that. Um, with NFL guys, we're not doing really any continuous work. Um, yeah. It's just. It's all either it's all interval based uh, when we're doing more ge more general uh, extensive type tempo work and then you know we, maybe we'll do tempo runs along going along with that um, and then uh, eventually we will progress to doing more multi-directional uh, agility type drills done extensively at lower intensity and just working on the motions and things like that and um, that that will eventually progress to where we'll start doing some representative type drills found within the sport. So that's, that's kind of where some new stuff that we're doing with that, which I guess we can maybe get into later. But so that's what's happening. We're starting with our extensive work just to sum that up. And then after that, we're basically just, we're going back into the weight room and we're doing some type of upper body power with some type of, uh, throw that's upper body, uh, emphasized. So, um, I'll save, more explosive full body type throws for um, our high CNS days. And on these days we might do a throw on the knees or we're doing some type of power push up or something like that. We'll, we'll start with some type of upper body power work. Um, and I kind of treat that as like an extra little mini warm up heading into just an upper body dominant lifting session. So yeah. that's really, 
to, to sum it up nicely, it's just day one and day three, we're doing extensive work. Then we're doing upper body lifting basically. And then on our high days, day two and day four, again, we warm up and then we start with our, our speed work. You know, we're doing our sprint training. Um, we're doing that first while we're fresh and then, um, we're progressing into our power and then our, our lower body strength work. Um, we'll follow that. So that's basically like the broad template as it were. It's we got on our low days, we're doing extensive work in upper body and then on our, our, uh, high days, we're doing, uh, speed power and then, uh, emphasizing lower body strength. You, you mentioned kind of day one, two, three, four, are they getting the Wednesday off in the middle? Yeah, the Wednesday is off for them. So I'll give them things that I encourage them to do on their own, which is really just more restorative, uh, you know, mobility type yeah. things. Um, they have the option to come in if they want to and just and do some soft tissue work, things like that if they want to. But we're not doing any truly scheduled work on that day. Um, it's not, not that I would never do that. Yeah. You know, it's just in terms of being in the private sector and obviously people pay per session. It just seems to work best with a four day program seems to be smoother than trying to convince guys to come five days a week and do like a true, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> a true high low or three high days and two low days or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how we lay it out. And then they're, they, they're off on the weekends as well. Saturday, Sunday, I don't see them. That's, that's when they're off uh, messing up the hard work you did in the week. Yeah. That's why we start the week off with the low day, ramp them back up. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Well, you're, uh, I, I guess you don't want to have all that high work planned and then have to change it anyway because of the stuff that happened at the weekend. And yeah, I, that, in my, in my <laughs> exactly. experience, just in my experience as well, even when they're not, you know, out fucking up the, you, if, if you give them that ramp up, you're normally going to get better results anyway with the, the highest day being day two in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. The Tuesday and the Friday are always always end up being pretty good days, you know, yeah. coming off the weekend, ramping up, coming off that Wednesday off, ramping up on Thursday. For sure. um, so, yeah. With, with your upper body power, are you, are you programming that in terms of the force velocity profile or you're only really concerning yourself with that on the lower body stuff for obvious reasons? Yeah. yeah I'm not, I'm not doing it with upper body as much. Um, yeah. just because, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, like Chris Duffin will do it with the bench press and the, the squat and deadlift. I've seen them do that. But, you know, for us, I'm thinking in my head, like I said before, you know, how much is the bench press really helping these guys on the field? I mean, it's not. So um, that stuff, I'm not really going to take the time to force velocity profile all that. Yeah. Uh, that kind of goes back to earlier in the podcast where, you know, what's what's really important. So um, really with that stuff, all I'm doing is I like to see a jump profile. Yeah. Like, you know, they call it the vertical profile. And then I like to see a sprint profile. So yeah. that's that's really all I'm doing from that standpoint. Well, you know, what did what did uh, Christian McCaffrey bench at the the combine? Uh, I don't know. Doesn't matter. <laughs> ten yeah. reps or so, less than less than ten reps. But yeah, know, I first, mean, first round. <laughs> and he's running. He's running oh, well. He's, he can run. Do you, do you see a lot of yep. um, a lot of similarity within the 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 outcome of the the vertical profile and the sprint profile? Uh, in terms of like both the, being the force needs, deficient yeah. or, uh, it's, it's very, it's variable. It's a lot. It's very variable. It, I'll say that that's kind of a weird thing to say. Very variable. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's different because it, it just, it depends on, um, what exercise you're using as well, which is very interesting. So what I've started doing just because of, you know, all the talk about, uh, muscle slack 
you know, with the, the dreaded term, yeah. but, um, you know, what it comes down to with muscle slack is just can the way I see it is just that it's really early rate of force development. That's really what they're talking about. So it's just, you know, how fast can they twitch and just create tension out of nothing? So what I've started doing with my jump profiling is instead of doing uh, a counter movement jump, I started doing with the trap bar or hex bar, just doing a, a jump from the floor, you know, just a concentric only jump. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's going to stress their ability for that muscle slack a little bit more. I don't know. But it's interesting because there were guys that if I did a counter movement jump, they would show up force deficient, like they needed force. But if I did uh, a concentric only hex bar jump, it showed that they needed velocity. So it's it's specific to the type of jump that you use as well. So I think that's important to say. Um, but obviously in, in a world where velocity and speed is, is very important, you know, that's why I started using the, the, the concentric only hex bar jump, because I think that's going to be a better telltale sign specifically for, you know, an NFL player or American football player where every position, no matter what, starts statically and then just has to move. Yeah, so off the that, line. That, yeah, so that's why I started using that to determine that. And um, what I've been doing with that is, is using the old Bosco method. I think that seems to make the most sense um, in terms of, you know, what, what coaches can do that's pretty simple to use. And um, basically, uh, you know, he's got his 30 to 40% range for, uh, what is it, for strength speed, and then the 60 to 70% range for speed strength, you know, if you're, I can't remember offhand really what I'm saying, but um, yeah, I think it's roughly the range is 30 to 40 for explosive, 60 to 70 for, um, or maybe a, a fraction higher for strength speed, and then the region in the middle is, is maximal power output. Yeah, so it's all based off what you do unloaded, right? So yeah. um, basically what I've started doing is that if if the guys are not in range for either of those numbers, um, or if they're in range for if they're not in range for both, so if they're in range for only one but not the other, they still need some force because they're not they're not producing enough force to, to get in range for that. Um, if they're in range for both, then I say that they are well balanced. And then if they are, you know, or if they're out of range for one, but in range for the other, if they're out of range on the upper end, I should say, if they're above the range on one in range for the other, they're still well balanced in my head. And then as soon as they become like above the upper limit, if they're above the range, then their velocity dominant. So they need, they probably, um, need to work on some more force. So that's the way I look at it is, are, are they, do they, are they, if they're not in range, then, then or I had it backwards. I'm sorry. If yeah. they're not, if they're not in range, they need force. If they're above the range, they need more speed because they're almost, they're, they're really strong. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I get you. I got you. How do you approach the, the logistical difficulties of implementing that? Is it a case of how I would approach it is, you know, I'm going to put at each stage of the program, I'm going to try and put players into buckets or am I trying to individualize each individual player? Do you rely on interns or is it just a fact that the smaller group lends itself to allowing you to do that? And this is a selfish question for me because I've got 45 guys. Definitely the, the smaller groups definitely help. Um, the setting that I have with the athletes, it, it definitely helps that, that it's not a big group. But I think what I would do if I were to have a big group is that I would um, – if we had a series of racks, you know, if we had, 
you know, racks one through 20 or something like that. Yeah. I would probably, I would probably say racks, you know, one through five are for forced efficient guys. These racks are for well-balanced guys. And these racks are for guys that are velocity deficient or something like that, where they're separated that way. And then also, you know, once they're, I think, I think you don't have to do uh, necessarily so much in terms of changing. It might just be that, you know, if you're force deficient, you're on these racks and you're doing some type of uh, weighted jump. And then if you're well balanced, maybe do an unloaded jump in the middle here. And then if you're velocity deficient, you do some assisted jumps at the end. But it could be the same exact jump variation, just, you know, one's resisted, one's not, and then one's assisted or something yeah. like that. So I think, you know, it, it comes down to just trying to balance out the program overall, I think. I think that's kind of the take-home message is if you're working in a team setting, it's probably better to just learn how to train everybody at, along the entire force velocity curve. And then, um, you know, I think ultimately you'll end up building pretty balanced athletes that way. So that's definitely the safest way to do it is just, you know, train along the curve at, at some point throughout the year in the off season. And uh, if you have guys that you can focus specifically on, then that's where this profiling becomes pretty potent as well. You know, to me, that that is one of the, the biggest unspoken benefits of, of French contrast is at some point within that, that complex, you're going to give them exactly what they need. Exactly. We've been using that a lot more as well, the, uh, the French contrast work, especially as we start nearing uh, the season, sort of like towards the end of our, our off season, we started using that a lot more because it does allow them to dig deep and train really the entire curve. So it's pretty cool. Now let's let's talk about the uh, the optimization of, of sprint work because obviously I'm guessing that's where you're going to see the biggest bang for your buck, the biggest transfer to the to the field of play, and that probably gets the the bulk of your attention as a coach. Ha- talk me through the the assessment uh, protocol to understand their needs and then how you're going to use that information to make them faster. Yeah, so uh, what I'll do if I want like the concrete answer where I can see the data and, and figure out how to manipulate it uh, is I'll use the my sprint app which is um, fairly complicated to use I definitely encourage if you look into using that app um, a you need the resources available in terms of being able to film each and every athlete um, but B you need to read the directions you need to make sure that you're you're setting it up properly I think people just rush to try to use it. And yeah. the data is ridiculous all over the place. You know, some guy, some guy had sent me his data uh, from the My Sprint app, and it said that he had a horizontal force ratio of like 160. percent I said that means that you went under. <laughs> I was like, I was like, that means you went underground. Like you, you, you went so, you were so not vertical that you went underneath the ground. You know, I mean, it, it's just it's funny, but so that that's definitely going to give you some really good answers if you use it correctly. Um, but a lot of what I've been seeing has been the result of um, just taking basic video and in slow motion and then observing um, some of what you're able to see from that video. So you, you can tell in a video if a guy is in a sprint stance um, and he comes up fairly high out of his stance initially, then he probably doesn't have such great horizontal force output you know it's just you don't know for sure but you can guess um and then the other thing i'll focus on as well is is looking at their technique you know one of the things i saw from chris corfist you know bringing him up again 
was uh, the decrease in the ratio of force in terms of how much force they're losing per step of acceleration. Um, he noticed that in video, you can see if they're lacking ankle stiffness because their ankle is completely collapsing on contact. And he thinks that that has something to do with them losing force on each step because they're, they're leaking energy. So sure, that's something else. You can, right? Yeah. That's something else you can see on video, which is pretty interesting. Um, and then a lot of just technical stuff can go a long way in terms of improving sprint performance without even having to do force velocity profiling or, or heavy resisted sprint training or like anything fancy. You can see a lot from just video. You know, we had a guy who was struggling with hamstring injuries. Um, he would pull his hamstrings all the time when he would sprint longer than 20 yards or longer than 20 meters. And I filmed him doing a 30, I think, Actually, it was a 40-yard sprint. So I filmed him doing a 40-yard sprint. And he goes, yeah, my hamstrings felt really tight on that. We played the video back. And he was, you know, your typical team sport, overarched, uh, reaching for it too much. He's kicking out the back like crazy. Yeah. Um, and just putting a ton of stress on his hamstrings. But to be honest with you, that's something I couldn't see with, with just looking at him. Like, I wasn't able to see that with the naked eye because he's a pretty fast athlete. Um, so I had to film it to see that. And so I think that's a big a big time starting point for assessment is what's, what's their technique look like? Is it, is it so bad that it's risky? And if it's not, then I think you can start getting a little creative in the training, but if it is, you need to address that first and you need to teach them how to run upright because a lot of team sport athletes don't know how to do that. Um, they, yeah. they know, they know how to do tens, you know, tens and twenties and driving out. But then, you know, a lot of, a lot of running, on the field and this, this I got from watching some stuff from Ken Clark is pretty upright. You know, when you think about it, um, well, we talked about so this off air, you know, if, if you're in a contact sport and you're, you're trying to come out as, as you would from the blocks in track and field, you're incredibly easy to tackle because the guy just needs to jump on you and that's it. His job is done. So right. There, there's a similarity, but they're, they're not one and the same because often you're going to have to have a more upright posture anyway to, to make yourself stronger in contact, to be aware of the game, and also to be able to pass the ball. Exactly. I think it just comes down to they need to they need to learn how to be efficient in all different settings and all different positions. So coming out of you know a, a low sprint start, they need to be efficient there. Being upright, they need to be efficient there. So most guys are pretty pretty decent at being able to come out in a low position, just because it's it's hammered down the throats of these athletes. But yeah. um, I think where where they're missing the boat is on the upright stuff so these you know these coaches are reading things like oh we need to do longer sprints because you know a 10 feels a lot different than a 40 or a 50 or something like that or flying sprints feel way different than everything but you know they're so they're looking at the drill without understanding the technique and the athletes are are getting hurt you know they're like i don't want to do flying sprints anymore because they always get hurt i don't want to do anything over 20 yards because they're going to get hurt no matter what but once we helped this guy out with his front side mechanics, when he started going beyond 20 yards, um, you know, knock on wood, he hasn't had any hamstring issues since. And I think it was just fixing that, that very risky technical flaw, you know, and then just, yeah. uh, so, so from an assessment standpoint, that's definitely where it all starts, um, is doing your job as a coach and, and studying really what it, what it means to sprint well, um, at least enough to where you're not at a, very high risk of just pulling something right out of the gate. And I think a lot of guys just, they're quick to prescribe drills without even fully understanding everything that goes into those drills. 
and and the progression. Exactly, yeah, and then like what to do um, after that. Are you using? Well, no, obviously you're you're timing, but are you going to use the the quality of the outputs to dictate the volume of the session? Yes and yes and no. So when I say yes, is if I have the timer out there that day, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so definitely, if if um, they start dropping below the, like ninety five percent, and I always have that. If I know what we're doing, if we haven't tested it yet, I'll just say let's try to get a number today. Just do what you can. Um, so we'll time it. If we have a time on that, it's always ninety five percent or faster. So if they drop below that. I, I cut them right there because I'm like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to risk them doing another one and something happening. But what we'll do sometimes, um, because I've thought of this as, you know, sprinting is a necessary skill for these field sport athletes, so it's worth taking more time to spend on it than it is on bench pressing or something like that. Yeah. Um, we'll have days where we go out there and I don't have the timer out, and the reason I do that is a psychological benefit to the guys where I say, I'm not going to time you today, but I am going to film you. So I want you guys to think about, you know, we'll do minimal volume. I'll have a set volume in my head. doesn't mean we have to do that. But I say, just, just go at a pace that feels good for you, where in your mind you're trying to run 90 to 95%. And you're just focusing on technique, and you're, and you're just working on the skill of sprinting rather than just going balls out. And I think those days, just to cycle in, are pretty beneficial to the guys and I'll film them and I'll go back and I'll kind of look and I'll make sure that, you know, the technique is there. And after every single rep though, how'd that feel? How'd that, how, how was that? Um, if they're like, Oh, my leg kind of feels tight. I'm like, all right, you're done. Like, that's it. You know, you don't have to do the rest of the volume. Or if they're like, I feel great. I'm like, okay, let's get maybe one more or here's, whatever. Here's a question for you. Do you ever find that when you have, when you're in that situation that you'll get guys that actually run faster? A hundred percent. So yeah, there was, there was literally a day where I actually had the timer out there. Um, and I said, I want you guys to, to actually aim for 95%. Like, I don't want you to beat your time. I want, I said, here's you run. I forget what it was. Let's say it's a 40 yard dash. I'm like, you run a four, four. I want you to run a four, six, something, you know, whatever 95% was Yeah. in their mind. They're like, Oh, that's way slower. Even though they're still in a speed environment. They're like, that, that's slower. I can do that. And then, uh, out of, you know, maybe four guys that were in that session, two of them PR'd without even, you know, literally without even trying. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, 100%. Because that, that, that's why I'm saying that those days are great because you're teaching them how to relax and go fast, you know. So yeah. they start they start finding the commonality and understand pacing, um, which I think every great athlete in track is able to do. They understand what the different speeds feel like intuitively. And we're trying to teach that with field sport guys too, you know? So, um, and that goes into maximal versus operational output where now they know like, okay, I know what this feels like. So if I only have to move at this to make a play, then why am I going to waste so much energy if this is all I need to do on this play, you know? Yeah. And then I'm going to, I'm going to save myself and my endurance is going to help me. And, um, yeah, I think that from a skill standpoint, um, those days are great. You know, it's the same thing as just practicing something at a, you know, doing a, doing a lift at 80% instead of 90% or something like it's, that. It's, it's interesting still gonna get because strong. I, uh, do you, you know, Sam Portland? Um, yeah, I know the name, but yeah. I don't, I don't know him personally. So he, he was my assistant and we had a good conversation uh, recently and I, I talked about, 
you know, the most frustrating thing for me is when I get the guys to race against each other, they'll self-organize, they'll learn to run faster and it looks good. The moment you put them through the gates, it just turns to shit and it's, it's like magic. And he said, well, it's obvious you're putting them in a stressful situation and in, in any other situation in sport, you, you can never expect an athlete to excel in a situation that is new and uncomfortable. They only excel in situations which are familiar and comfortable. And he said, I've been doing a program of stress inoculation with my guys where I'll, you know, he'll put the speed gates just on the side of the pitch near them and won't even time them just to get them used to seeing the gates. And then they'll run through the gates with the, with the timer not on. And then they'll do, you know, slow through the gates, but not tell them the time. And then they'll do the time, and then they'll compete. And then he said, in his experience, that's that's kind of eased the the process for them. And that's that's one thing that I, I would like to try and bring in more with my guys. It's just more of a time constraint for me. Yeah, I can't I can't agree any more than with what he just said. Um, and I think that that falls in line with that day that I had the gates out there, but I yeah. specifically told them not to run full speed. I said run at ninety five percent. Uh, I think it's the same sort of thing where yeah. they, they see the gates and they know they can relax. And, and the fact that they got personal records too was, was great proof for them as well. Where it's like, oh, I don't have to like, you know, strain to try to run faster. Yeah. I can just sort of, I can let it happen. You know, oh, I can Cam- let myself Cameron does run. know what he's talking about. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. As long as they believe that, that's what matters. You know, I don't know how much I believe that myself. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <you know? laughs> With the uh, with the the power optimization of sprinting, what what's the approach there, and how how do you implement that into the training? Uh, you mean the like running against the load of max exactly, power? Yeah, or? The, 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 I'm I'm kind of referencing the recent article you put up on on simply faster. Yeah. So the interesting thing with that is you know talking with JB Marin and Matt Cross and um, they they're the research they provided to me when I was trying to do some of their stuff and put it into practice is that, you know, your, your max power in sprinting is going to happen in around a second, you know, a little bit might even happen less than a second. So if you take off in sprint, you know, that optimal combination of force and velocity in that specific exercise is going to happen in less than a second. So what they're doing with the, having the load of max power is that they are basically just trying to take the environment of that sprint start and like very, very early acceleration mm-hmm. and just stretch, stretch that out a little bit. So we yeah. can, they can expose the athlete more to that environment. So, you know, if you can take basically a five meter sprint and turn it into a 20 meter sprint, that's kind of what they're looking at. Um, and with that stuff, what's, what's pretty potent is that it just allows you to get out very quickly and it allows you to understand how to propel yourself forward in acceleration. Um, because that's something that a lot of very speed dominant athletes seem to struggle with. Like the guys that are really velocity dominant, they sometimes they'll, you know, I'm talking more so like the, the twitchy guys, you know, they, they can, they can move their legs very fast, but they can't propel themselves in time and space. Speedy Gonzalez. So that's exactly. Yeah. So this, <laughs> that type of stuff that really teaches them how to drive the ground back. Um, and the nice thing about it is that they are, you're using a load that's going to put them in that position of maximizing that power. So if we're talking specifically about a field sport athlete, you know, if we talk about the NFL and you hand the ball to a running back and you say, you need to run 
as far as you can on this play. Um, and there's also going to be a guy in the way that's going to try to take you down. So you need to run over him. So you need a lot of power to overcome this guy in your way. So I, I think it's it's got a huge benefit to, to collision sports and just uh, team sport athletes in general because a lot of what they're doing is 5 to 10, maybe 20-yard accelerations. I know in American football, if you uh, for most positions, if you can sprint a solid 10 yards, you know, that that's a pretty good play offensively. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting where that's what they're trying to do with that. And I, the reason why I wrote this article, it's actually a second part to a previous article that I wrote is I think a lot of people were looking at it like, Oh, so that's all I need to do is do heavy sprint training. You know? <laughs> so they think yeah, that yeah. that's, that that's all they have to do is this max power sled sprinting. But you know, what I tried to convey in this article was no, because at the end of the day, you still have to sprint unloaded because if you're, if your max power is only happening within a second, all we're doing with this load of max power is trying to maximize that start. You know, we're trying to just get you out quickly out of the start and like the first five to 10 meters or first five to 10 yards. That's, that's, we're trying to maximize that as much as possible because if you can shoot out like a cannon and then you can spread out your acceleration, you know, and continue to do that if you're a track and field sprinter then that's beneficial to you. If you're a team sport athlete and you can shoot out of a cannon and get yourself 10 yards and run over a couple guys in, uh, in the process, you're very beneficial to your team and you're a very beneficial player. So that's what, that's what it's looking at right there is, is basically the way I view it in my head is that it's context-specific strength training. You know, If you want to think of it that way, it's sprint-specific strength work. It's not we're not looking at it as speed training. We're looking at it as this is building up very specific strength qualities that will have a transfer over to sprinting. Yeah. You know, is it going to, is it going to improve your 40 time? Maybe I've shown that it can, uh, in my articles, but is it going to happen every time? Uh, it's doubtful that it'll happen hundred percent of the time, yeah. but, but is what it, it going to make it w- better at running through a guy from a five meter buildup? Probably. Uh, I think it comes down to what we talked about before, where it's you're you're training a very specific component, and you're looking for a very specific adaptation. So you know if you're, it's like you just said, if you're trying to run a faster forty, it might have limited improvement. But if you're trying to run somebody over, then it's probably going to have a pretty good improvement. It's going to have a very high improvement because it's exactly what you're going to experience on the field, which is trying to run through a ton of resistance. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So um, I think people need to just keep things within the context of what they're looking at. You know, I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to take a guy who's going for a gold medal and only do max power sled sprinting with him. You know, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah. So I think it just comes down to who are you working with? I know in American football guys get run over or they have to run guys over themselves. So um, I think that's a very potent training stimulus for, for that specific population. It, similar to your uh, your kind of situation, we've had a, a, a little bit of a shift this year based on uh, tactics, input coming from the coach, and obviously when we get to the, the business end of our prep, we're trying to be very, very specific in how we train our guys and enhance power output and certain movements and the way that we've always done it is if you had to write it down on a postcard, what would you do better than anyone else? And we decided, well, you know, for, for certain positions, namely our, our locks and our back rows, we, we want, want to run through guys this year. And it, I'm, I'm not approaching it from as scientific a, 
a standpoint as you due to the resources, language barrier, that kind of stuff. But basically, once or twice a week, we ask our guys to hook themselves up to a 100 kilo sled and get through 10 meters absolutely as fast as possible. And it was just... And just go. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're probably going to have to run through a guy that weighs that much. And Oh, no doubt. Yeah, they're, they're running through guys now on the field. And I think certainly there's, there's uh, belief comes into it. But the fact that they enjoy it and maybe they're seeing some transfer there, I think it's, um, like you said, it's, it's horses for courses. And if you're having to run through people, that's probably a great tool to use. Yeah, I think it, it comes down as well to, you know, the psychology of it. Like you just said, if, if, you can, if you can hook a guy up to something like that and he's looking at you like, wow, that's, that's what it feels like to run through somebody. That's the, my legs, what, the, what my legs feel like in that moment. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, it's just, what are you, what are you trying to get out of the exercise? You know, that's what it comes down to is just, you know, if, if you're trying to build a certain adaptation, it doesn't always have to be super scientific adaptation. Like maybe the adaptation in your case is I want to run through somebody like that. I want to be able to adapt to run through somebody. Yeah. So <laughs> let, let me hook up. Let me put this hundred kilo sled on. If I can't move this, then I probably can't run through a guy that's a hundred kilos, you know? So Absolutely. it's just, from a psychological standpoint, and it's, then it's, interesting it's to see the disparity between who's necessarily the best performer in a, in a barbell back squat versus the guy that can move that sled faster than anyone else. Uh, going back to what we said, full circle, often not the same people. Well, it's funny that you say that because in my article I talk about how, you know, ultimately it all comes down to over time things just need to get more specific. So you might have you might have uh, gone through all of your available adaptation in a back squat but it doesn't mean that you're out of all your adaptation in a heavy sled drag or a heavy sled sprint or something like that maybe you still have some more force that you can gain specifically in that exercise you don't know so it's more specific to what you're doing on the field what's going to be new for you what what kind of direction are you trying to take the program in and, and push the envelope with your guys uh what what we're going to try to do now is I'm, I'm currently in the process of writing an ebook with Joe DeFranco. It should be out pretty soon where we are trying to create a generalized field sport template that encompasses just as much as we can try to throw into it as much as our brains can handle right now. So it's just, yeah. how can, how can we fit all of these awesome things into some point in the year? Um, and where does it seem to make sense in our minds, in our opinions, so things like, you know, French contrast training, how do we fit that in? Where do we fit in like uh, heavy isometrics where we're, we're pressing into an immovable object as, as hard as we can for five seconds or something like that? Where can we do, you know, traditional contrast training or complex training? Uh, where do we fit heavy sled sprints into the equation? You know, where, where, do all, where does all this stuff fit? Because there's so much stuff out there um, that these coaches are seeing. But, you know, they don't know when and why to use it. So I think that's that's what's next for us in terms of trying to dive a little deeper into that standpoint is just, you know, what what makes sense to use a certain tactic and when. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to use it at that standpoint, but trying to get a better understanding of why we're using a certain method, why we're using a certain exercise um, and just sort of what makes sense for the given population that we're working with. And then I would say the next step for me personally is trying to dive in a little bit more into understanding uh, nonlinear pedagogy and just more of the, the dynamics that go into skill acquisition and just trying to understand more really what the new theories uh, 
of you know dynamic systems theory and all that stuff, trying to figure out what the hell makes an athlete the athlete that he is. You know, just trying to learn more about that stuff. Um, very excited for Game Changer by Fergus Connolly coming out soon. Yeah. I think that will be that will be a very interesting uh, overview of you know his his work and what he's been doing and how the big picture type stuff, you know, we talk about, you know, James Smith and his governing dynamics of coaching and it's all along the same lines, but that's, I want to dive into more of that stuff. You know, the stuff that um, on a broad scale in terms of macro programming for, you know, a team over the course of a season, but also at the micro level, like how, what's it going to take for this guy to just become a better player at his respective position and how can I prep him more specifically for the perception and action couplings he's going to find on the field. Um, you know, true agility, I guess you could say. That's the stuff I want to learn more about is how the perception and psychological and psychomotor domains kind of influence each athlete. And um, that's that's my area of interest right now. Have, have you ever heard of um, a book by Nassim Taleb called The, the, book, uh, the Bed of Procrustes? No. So that's... It kind of touched on what well, it's basically all about. What you just touched on, sorry. So, a major problem that we have in kind of knowledge in in the world is that you trim the problem to make it fit your model, whereas in reality you should change your model to to fit the reality. And I think you, yeah. you just touched on it right there. Is rather than say, "Oh, this guy's a great athlete because he does," you know, because he's got a double bodyweight squat or blah 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 maybe we need to be trying to ask ourselves, well, why is this guy such a great athlete? And then changing the training model to fit that. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's the stuff. I want to dive deeper into that stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Where can uh, where can people find you? I'm pretty active on social media. So um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. My, my handle name is at Cam Joss, C-A-M-J-O-S-S-E. Uh, I basically use that as an online journal where I just post all the stuff I'm doing with the guys. I'll post uh, books I'm reading, videos of everything we're doing, pictures. And so I, I, I like using it from that standpoint. Um, and I'm in the process of trying to put a blog site together, just, you know, myself on my own website, just kind of blogging about stuff. And uh, that should be up at some point, probably heading into next year. But uh, definitely social media is the place to find me. And, uh, you know, always interested in having discussions with guys and uh you know feel free to reach out to me and uh we'll, we'll try to connect dude that was awesome way better than the first one and the first one was really good <laughs> <laughs> take take two a little bit better <laughs> yeah thanks very much cameron yeah thanks so much no problem